Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We will also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this podcast, we'll be digging into the subject of radiation maculopathy, which of course is the most common complication following the irradiation of intraocular tumours. We have a panel of ocular oncologists from across Europe to discuss. Hebe Kuhl from the United Kingdom, Ivona Rosbankubiak from Poland, Emin Kilic from the Netherlands, and Raffaele Parazzani from Italy. You're all very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'll hand you over to Dr. Rosbankubiak to start the discussion. Ivona. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a real pleasure. Um, the subject of today's podcast is radiation maculopathy, and we have chosen it as is a uh, common complication of radiation treatment. And uh, more and more patients uh, are now being treated with um, eye-sparing te- techniques and eye-preserving treatments, and uh, more and more smaller lesions are actually being treated. So the management of these patients is slowly moving actually from the ocular oncology clinics to the medical retinal clinics. And in our everyday um, practice, we receive a lot of questions from our retinal uh, colleagues about the management of these patients. So what we are trying to do now actually is uh, to optimize the vision as well as uh, treat the tumors. However, the management of the radiation maculopathy, it's still challenging. There are no standard protocols, very few randomized studies published so far. So there are still many unanswered questions. But to start off, I think it might be worth thinking about which patient actually are more susceptible for the developing radiation maculopathy. Hiba, what is your experience? Thank you, Ivana. I, I agree with you, but radiation maculopathy is so variable and, it, and can be very common. But there's particular patients I'm more worried about. And the, the patients with the larger tumours tend to be the ones that develop worse maculopathy. And we think there's two reasons for that. It's both the fact that they need more radiation to treat those tumours, so there's a higher dose to the eye. But we think there's an interplay from the tumour tissue itself making these patients more susceptible. The larger tumours are one part of the discussion, but also it's the location of the tumours. And certainly the posterior macular tumours tend to have worsened maculopathy. So those types of patients are more alert to looking for maculopathy. The other subgroups I'd be thinking about are probably the diabetic patients. Radiation has an effect on the vascular endothelial cells. And of course, in diabetic disease, diabetic retinopathy, you have problems with the parasites from the hyperglycemia and the two seem to compound one another. So in our younger patients, I'm much more vigilant for maculopathy changes and I'd probably be likely to step in sooner. But of course, the patient is only one part of the story. And I think the treatment the patient receives can influence whether or not a patient will develop problems. I think, Amina, you've had experiences of this. What do you think about the different other factors that can affect radiation maculopathy? Thank you, Hiba. First, we have to consider about the radionucleotide that has been used because we use different uh, kinds of radiation. And we can uh, use ruthenium versus iodine. And there have been some comparative studies to look at uh, the both nucleotides. And then with uh, keeping all the factors the same, there was some evidence that there was 18% less of uh, radiation to the macular region uh, for the ruthenium versus the iodine. However, there aren't any large studies that have compared both treatment options. 
for the, the, the plaque radiotherapy, but for the what we have done in the past for the stereotactic radiotherapy versus the proton beam treatment is that we um, saw both groups develop radiation retinopathy, actually radiation macronopathy, but we saw it more often in the larger tumors, just as you mentioned before. And uh, from my own experience, it looks like the, the proton beam patients develop radiation macronopathy a bit earlier than the uh, stereotactic uh, radiotherapy-treated patients. So there are a lot of things to keep in mind. And the most important thing will be the, the amount of radiation that the macular region has uh, got during the treatment. So the next thing we should consider is when do you see the first signs of radiation macronopathy? And I think Raphael knows a lot about this. And Raphael, can you talk us through your insights? Thank you for the question, because it's not a simple question. It depends how we think about radiation maculopathy. If we think about radiation maculopathy as a vasooclusive phenomenon, that is one part of the problem, we can see the first thing still in a few months after the irradiation. But the vasooclusive situation is not the treatable part of the problem. If we look to the radiation maculopathy as the edema of the macula, this usually occurs more or less two years, one year and a half after radiation, depends from type of radiation and so on. And this is more interesting for me because actually is what we can retain the treatable part of the problem. But uh, another problem inside this complicated situation is the edematous part of the problem, the macular edema, did not appear often in the same timing. And sometimes we have to predict how to happen in a few months because this is the only way to follow the patient uh, in a good way. And what we have seen in a few years is that there is a sort of inflammatory reaction before the appearance of macular edema. This is clinically detectable by using OCT and detecting the hyperreflected intraretinal spots. There are signals of a sort of neuroretinal inflammation that is visible more or less two to three months before the edema. This is a sort of wake-up call of the problem. That means in few weeks or months, we have the edema to part of the problem that can. It's not simple, I know, to look at the spots that is promising. So, uh, Rafael, in your opinion, is there a low role for uh, the NGO city actually in um, the early recognition of radiation maculopathy? I'm not fully convinced about that because um, OCT and geography take a fantastic look to the occlusion of the retinal vessels, the deeper, the intermediate, and the superficial capillary plexus that is well known and, and demonstrated phenomenon after radiation. And it's an early phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon that we cannot control now. And therefore, what we need to know is to predict and control the edema. This is not well detectable or simply detectable by OCT and geography. And this is the reason why we use OCT and geography to follow the patient, the first phases of the disease, 
But when it happens, it appears we have the same problem of diabetic retinopathy. It's not so simple to decide what is the hypoperfusion of the macula, which is the edematous part of the autoperfusion, what are the mixed form, and so on. Probably we need more time. So uh, thank you for that really helpful overview um, what to be vigilant for when monitoring the patients for radiation maculopathy. The next questions actually would be, when would we want to start treatment actually? What would be the first sign when we, would you start the treatment, Rafael? This is a tricky question because uh, there are some studies now that uh, suggest to treat in an early phases, in a pre edematous phases, to uh, look at the start of edema or to wait until the visual acuity drop. I have not an answer about that, but by a pathophysiological point of view, I think that we need uh, to stay very weak to see the first part of the dematous change of the macula. And to do that, we have to come back to the, the concept of look at the hyperreflective retina spot. And when you have a changes in the perfected retina spot, and then you have a changes in the macula, but the first edematous changes, I think that this is the right time to treat. So I think that there is another important problem on that. This is the timing of treatment. The timing of treatment means what do you think about the concept of treat the disease before the appearance of the edema? Shall I step in here because I have done some uh, literature search and um, also a little bit about our own experience because Last August, there was a very nice publication about a review of all the papers that have been published in the past few years about uh, prophylactic anti-VEGF. And uh, what it says was actually it may delay the radiation maculopathy by approximately 50%, but there was a low level of cert certainty. So at the moment, for the proton beam patients, a lot of facilities uh, still do prophylactic treatment that they start uh, anti-VEGF at start of uh, radiation uh, treatment. And for all other uh, treatment options, I do not really know if there is a lot of prophylaxis uh, at the moment ongoing. But then there's also be postulated by uh, Paul Finger that you should look at those uh, that has been given to the fovea, as I pointed out before, that if you have a 50 to 70 grade dose of the fovea, that will be give, given high risk of developing of radiation macrolopathy. So maybe those patients will be prone and more eligible to start prophylactic treatment. There aren't any large studies done yet. And at the moment, we just do not know whether it works and possibly it only delays the onset of radiation macrolopathy. So if we now have explored which patients we do and how do we monitor them, um, we actually do not really know what, when to start the treatment, then we still have the question open, which types of treatment can we do? So Raphael, what can we learn from the medical retina specialist to guide us in treatment selection? So looking at what happens uh, in diabetic macular edema, I have fixed in my mind one of the old, pro old problems that we have probably forgot. When we look to the data of the protocol T, the use of anti-VEGF in diabetic maculopathy, 
you need that in a post-talk analysis of breast, more or less 45% of patients with diabetic macular edema did not respond at two years follow-up. That's, for me, is a single that vascular endothelial growth factor can be a relevant player in the macular edema, but probably is not the only one, and probably is not only the main player. This is the reason why I start before speak about the concept of neuroinflammation. This is a concept not simply, but now is still growing from the medical retinal point of view. I mean, also to take in mind that there is another actor that is forgotten in this situation, the tumor. Because the tumor doesn't disappear. So when you treat a tumor with irradiation, the tumor have a sort of internal inflammation. And so we are probably in a situation more complicated than diabetic macular edema that is also still complicated without a tumor near the macula. This is the reason why I think that it is important to think of some alternatives, I think, about corticosteroid. But my question is now from Ivona, I know that most of our colleagues use anti-VEGF in the treatment of radiation macular edema, but there are many anti-VEGF. Do you think that there are some differences that may suggest us to use one or another anti-VEGF? Well, in my experience, there is no particular difference, any difference between the drug that is actually injected. In my experience, the most critical um, point is the time when you start the treatment because once we do it early and on time and then are persistent as long as there is a macular edema um, sometimes the visual gain is really uh, beneficial for the patient and <clears throat> what is happening uh, in this time is that some of those patients really get their treatment in uh, medical uh, retinal uh, clinics and some um, doctors actually ask, uh, are there any special considerations when injecting patients? And uh, what we, what would be the advice from the ocular oncologist is to uh, avoid actually the tumor or the tumor's uh, scar. And basically, if there is a, some retinal detachment, which actually is going to happen um, sometimes in the course of radiation uh, retinopathy, so always try to um, choose the site of the injection far away from the tumor if it's possible. But uh, I don't have any particular experience with different dosing regimens uh, with anti-VGF that are most uh, effective uh, in treating radiation maculopathy. We just do it as long as there is a uh, macular edema. But Emine, what is your experience? Now we have the same experience as you have, Ivona. We use different kind of drugs and just depending on the patient. And we first start out with one drug every four weeks and then uh, diminish it uh, just based on the, the complaints or the OCT findings. But if we look at, again, at the literature, then we uh, know that, that we have to keep in mind, like if there is a high dose to the macular region, maybe we should think of maybe earlier treatment versus a later treatment uh, when we see it on OCT. But of course, anti-VGF are not the only way to go. 
So, Rebel, would you bring in uh, any steroid treatment? Thank you, Amina. Actually, we use quite a lot of steroids in Sheffield. Um, we find it tends to work for those patients that might have early response to anti-VGF, but then the macular edema either doesn't completely dry up, so is refractory, or perhaps at first it responded well to the anti-VGF um, injections and then fails to continue. So we'll bring in steroids at those type, sorts of time frames. And we usually start with a shorter acting steroid in the first instance, perhaps a periocular or a subtenons injection. And if the patient shows good response, we then progress to one of the longer acting steroid implants. But we found that in, in, in a significant number of patients, steroids are more effective than the anti-VGF if it's failed to fully respond in the beginning. Something I haven't used much of, though, is actually laser in radiation maculopathy. And I think, Raffaella, you have some experience of that. Thank you for the question. This is not a simple question because laser in this type of disease is now considered as a sort of old machine that we need to forget. But this is a problem for me that start. I like to come back to diabetic maculopathy because... Uh, it's a different disease, but teach us how the medicine is going in the last 15 years. Tonal study, this is the Restore study, it was a study in 2011, the study that tell us that using antivascular endothelial growth factors in diabetic macular edema was better than standard laser. There was laser that burn the retina. This is absolutely true, except in one special situation. That is when you have an edema inferior for 400 microns. In this situation, the old laser that burn the retina and the anti-VAGF have the same efficacy. But it's now not more useful to destroy the retina around the macula to achieve some results. And this is the reason why we use, in particular cases, small edema inferior to 400 microns, micropulse diode laser. And macropulse diode laser is a laser that did not burn the retina. You have no any trace in the retina using any instrument you can have to check it. And you can obtain good results for a period for small edema. And this is also proven, coming back another time to diabetic macular edema, by the wonderful study of Noemi Lois, about the concept that when you use the laser in diabetic macular edema using the old laser, the laser that burned the retina and the micropulse diode laser have the same result for there is not need to burn the retina. This is the, the diamond study was published these years. Therefore, this is the reason why we use micropulse diode laser in selected cases for one period and then eventually we switch to other injective treatment. Thank you, Rafael. This has been uh, really uh, very interesting to explore the different uh, treatment approaches. And what we all know from the clinical experience, the disease is very variable. It's really, it's the clinical course can be different from patient to patient. So it is always worth uh, having all these alternatives in mind and switch from anti-VGF to steroid, for instance. But moving on, after we have started the treatment and achieved some stability, or if um, the patient is just not responding to treatment, what, when do we need to 
um, considered to stop the treatment? What would be uh, the signs and symptoms? Rafael, what is your opinion? My opinion is that we have to clearly take in mind that we have a look into a functional effect of the treatment. And you can have a functional effect of the treatment when the edema to part of the problem, the macular edema, is the problem that reduces the visual acuity, the main problem that reduces visual acuity. But when we have a distraction, anatomical distraction, of the retinal vasculature, of the retinal pigment epithelium and the outer retinal layers, you can inject what you want, you can reduce the edema, but you are not able to obtain any functional results. That in my health, there is the concept that the edema is the problem when the outer retina and the retinal pigment epithelium is okay. And when you have so much ischemia, that means if you inject a substance and you have a functional result, you can continue to do that. You have a no more functional result that is predictable. Look into the retina status. You have to stop that. Thank you so much. That was a really interesting discussion. We've covered an awful lot there. We've talked about what kinds of patients to, to look for maculopathy. We've talked about the, what the earliest signs would be and when to instigate treatment. And we've explored a little bit about which treatments might be the most effective. Interestingly, there's a prospective study that's going on in the US that's a multi-center randomized study. And they're going to be looking at anti-VGF, regular dosing versus long-acting steroid versus observation. So hopefully in the future, we'll have some more hard, hard answers to what works best for these patients. But in the meantime, I think we'll all agree that the most important thing, whether we're managing these patients in ocular oncology or in medical retina, is that we all need to be able to recognize these patients early, instigate treatment, treat them regularly enough and for long enough that we can actually achieve stability and then only stop the treatment once we know irreversible outer retinal damage has occurred. Thank you very much to all my faculty. I've really enjoyed that discussion and look forward to the outcomes of that study in future. Jonathan. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to our faculty and chairs for a fantastic discussion, Dr. Hibakuhl, Dr. Ivona Rosban-Kubiak, Dr. Imin Kilic, and Dr. Raffaele Parazzani. That's it from us on this particular episode. If you would like us to cover something, we are all ears. Please do email us. That is podcast at uretina.org and we will get to you as quickly as possible. We will be back in a couple of weeks with more Talking Uretina. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'm Jonathan McRae. We'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.